This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. You know, the statistics are out there. People are not reading like they used to. But yet we have a loyal gang of customers who read a lot. So even though we don't get the book sales from everybody, our community of people that like what we do in my book notes newsletter and stuff seem to be real readers. They'll order five, six, seven, eight serious books at a time. So I'm both encouraged that there is this small niche of people that are interested in thoughtful Christian literature and read widely. But yet in the bigger picture, I wonder how sustainable that can be because some of our readers are actually older. And people that Hmm. bought books from us, you know, 30 years ago are now wanting to sell their books. They write letters to me and say, what do I do with all my books? I'm retiring. I need to get rid of my Hmm. books. I'm downsiding. So as older folks who have the habit of reading well are dying off or buying less books uh, at this stage in their life, I'm wondering if a younger generation is going to rise up and replace them and allow bookstores like us to become sustainable in the in the next decades. It is worrisome. I think about it a lot, actually. I mean, my laypersons, again, my, my from my little perch, the average freshman that comes into college, the average freshman is not reading hardly anything at all. And if they are reading, they're reading nothing at length. That's the real yeah. uh, strike against them when they come into a college class where I ask them to read a 12-page essay. That's a thoughtful piece that requires sustained attention. That's a deal breaker for a lot of them at, at first until they kind of – you know, spend a semester or two learning how to read. And that seems to me a fundamental shift. 12, 12 pages is hard. That's like a chapter. Yeah. I mean, honestly, six pages for some people. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, and these are not like unintelligent people. I mean, I should stress, we're not talking about uh, people who don't have any, like, you know, they had good upbringings. They went to good schools. They did all the things. Um, is that because of social media and because of the way blogs and stuff sort of erode our ability to have sustained thought over time? I mean, that's the old argument of amusing ourselves to death by Neil Postman right. and the shallows by, by Nicholas Carr uh, suggests that there's something about the way the brain works, that we're training ourselves to not be able to think well and read widely or read a sustained uh, amount of pages. Yeah. So it mm. seems like that's real concern for people that read books yeah it it used to be the case that if you didn't you know how would you put this i mean if you take social media and uh what used to be web surfing off the table what are you going to do for entertainment it's tv or read right so so my generation it was all tv and music we just listened to tv or listen to music and watch tv i did not read uh until uh graduate school i think was the first time i actually did really any Long form reading at all? <clears throat> yeah, I was I was horrifyingly shocked when I saw twelve books assigned for one class in seminary, and and I was even more horrified when I found out we actually did have to read every page of every one of the twelve books, not because they were going to be discussed in lecture, but you needed them in order to understand what was said in lecture. Um, and I had to, you know, when I was twenty four years old, on the fly, very quickly learn how to read long, complex text, and I'd never really done that before in my life. So you, you, you can. You can do it. I feel the deficit 
of that every day. Even today when I read, I feel the deficit of not having read as a child or a teenager. I didn't read a whole lot growing up myself, sports biographies and, you know, Boy Scout stuff. But to be honest, my love for reading and the work we do here at Hearts and Minds was inspired largely by my college experience when some people showed me that there were books about the culture that I cared about. This was the very early 70s, Oz Guinness, The Dust of Mm -hmm. Death, books that looked at the culture and the counterculture, that looked at the issues of the day from a Christian frame. And that's what I longed for. And when I realized that books could make a difference in my discipleship, and because I loved Jesus so, and I wanted to be faithful in the world and serve him in a way that actually not everybody in the church was talking about, and I found books to be a lifeline, like speaking my love language, then I realized, oh, to take the lordship of Christ seriously, I need to read about the world in which we live, and mm. and I can do that through books, um, from stuff that I may not hear in Sunday school, you know. So books became all of a sudden a big thing for me, but it was, it was very much linked to my own... Um, growth as a Christian, my interest in certain kind of cultural engagement as a Christian in the in the 70s, whether it was race or war or peace or whatever, just issues of the day. Um, and then I began to work as a campus minister, the CCO, the Coalition for Christian Outreach out of Pittsburgh, um, hanging around with guys like R.C. Sproul, who were talking about the mind of Christ, Francis Schaeffer's teachings, so, uh, James Sire arguing for the Christian mind, Os Guinness. And so I began to help students that were not particularly uh, at an Ivy League school or anything. This was a branch campus of Penn State, engineering majors, not wanting to do the liberal arts thing real seriously. But I called them to think about vocation and calling and read Mm. books in their career area, nursing or engineering or science or business or whatever. And we would read books together. and, And so books became a lifeline for holistic discipleship. And that's when I began to realize, oh, books matter. This stuff really mm. does matter, and your mind matters, which I hadn't really thought about much through high school or anything. Um, I read a bit. You know, I liked some novels and stuff, but not much until mm. my young adult years, and I realized how critical it was at, the, at that point. So that personal connection, and as you were saying, it just dawned on me that two books that I read in seminary that were the first to blow my mind, and that's what I think – got me onto the reading train versus a begrudging, you know, academic reading. Uh, one was Francis Schaeffer in the trilogy um, where he just talks about the philosophical movements behind the punk rock movement. And of course, I'm a former punk rock drummer. I was full on in the punk rock uh, movement in the 1980s and early 90s in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I had never heard anybody a day in my life talk about the philosophical underpinnings <laughs> of punk until I read Francis Schaeffer. And then I was hooked. I was like, wait, 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 wait. This is connected to other things in the world. We thought we were doing our own thing down there, you know? And then I read uh, Michael Polanyi in that first semester with a friend. He's like, hey, all the big kids at seminary are reading Michael Polanyi. You want to read this together? And so I read it. I understand it about one-tenth of the words that he said. Um, But I remember, because I was a social sciences major and, and thinking that I understood how science worked, and I read his book, Personal Knowing, and realized I didn't understand a thing. And uh, I felt like the sense of like, oh my goodness, this world is so much bigger than I ever could have imagined. Which leads me to the conclusion, the hot take conclusion between you and me, um, is this a justification for kind of like get them to read anything they're interested in? Or uh, it seems to me actually more of a justification for you got to find the thing that will blow the person's mind. 
and then yep. convince them that the that the journey is worth it. <laughs> yep. I think you're, I think you're really onto something. I, I think that helping people discover that God cares about something that they care about that'll mm. blow their mind that they never heard before is sort of the key to open up Christian learning. Now, whether that leads them to podcasts or leads them to books, I don't know. But the fire of passionate learning because it matters often in embodied practical ways like you say punk rock like that's mm -hmm. the key and once somebody makes those connections then they're going to want to learn they're going to be uh, lifelong learners for me before polanyi it was the structures of scientific revolution oh yeah which sounds like such an odd heavy book but this idea that you know uh, even science begins to be framed by a priori's and, and presuppositions and stuff, which is what Schaefer was sort of saying is probably yeah. Schaefer, Schaefer people that told me I should read um, structures of scientific revolution. And so then you began to that naturally the Polanyi. So that was important for me too. And that was before yeah. I met Esther Meek, but man, oh, yeah. once we met Esther Meek and her love for even like punk rock and stuff, fascinating. Yeah. I also met Esther Meek after that as well. And um, yeah. I also feel everybody who knows me knows that I'm duty-bound that when you mention Thomas Kuhn's Structures of Scientific Revolutions, I have to point out that he he cobbled that uh, – he copped it off of Polanyi. So Polanyi's oh, work is, is 20 years prior or 15 years prior. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think he lightly admitted that he might have been influenced by some of Polanyi's work there. But yes um, – so that that to me then says that the best book to someone who maybe doesn't read that much is from a, someone who knows them well. Uh, I think we, I tend to read a book, it blows my mind, and then I want to give it to other people saying, you should read this. It's kind of like a song that you love, and then you have somebody listen to the song, you're like, you got to listen to the song, and they're like, Eh, it doesn't really yeah. do it for me. Yeah. yeah, and then, but the, really this gift, the gifting of a book is really somebody who knows you well, and they might not even like the book that much, but they know it's going gonna, it's gonna to work for you. So that intimate personal connection uh, becomes part of the I worry a little reading. bit about people giving Christian books to young adults mm. that may be their first taste of religious reading or thoughtful mm. Christian reading. And if it is too heavy or too arcane and it's going to turn them off and it may, it may set them back, you know, years until they be, are willing to try again. So I'm often a little careful when somebody says, oh, what's the best commentary in Romans? I'm going to give them some dry oh, commentary. Yeah. I'm like, no, not yet. Like, that's good stuff, maybe. But, like, let's ease into this in a way that can build lifelong reading habits in somebody. And mm. you don't want to just give them some book that particularly younger people that aren't used to that kind of thing. So when people email me, which happens every single day, I do a lot of online correspondence, people say, well, what's the best book on this or that or the other thing? And, and I say, well, the best book for who? Is right. it a beginner? Is it your pastor? Are you a pastor? Are you working on a PhD? Or are you a baby Christian? Have you read anything else in the field? Like, tell me what your story is, and then I can maybe recommend hmm. what might be a useful tool for you to read. But I'm really reluctant to just say, oh, read this. It's a top-of-the-line book on the subject because it may blow the person away in a bad way or it mm. may resonate in a good way. So you have to sort of be wise about sharing stuff. But sharing books is really, really an important thing to do. And recommendations from friends just has to matter. My intuition is that that just has to matter. So mm. we sell books um, to all kind of people at all kind of walks of life and all kind of levels of academic discourse. And it's just not simple that there's one easy book to read. But but you are right. The the reading habits are lowering over 
over time and you used to sort yeah. of say, well, people would know this or that, like say Francis right. Schaeffer, just for instance, in our tradition, or John Stott or somebody or, you know, whoever. And and you find that people now don't know who that is. Or Tim right. Keller or other people that I just take for granted because I've read eight or nine or ten of their books, and I assume other people have too. And then you realize, oh, people don't even know who that is. So it's an art form to be a bookseller and to have conversations and to be a teacher. Um, hmm. like, like you experience I'm sure it's tricky but to get people to want to read that's the key students sometimes ask me well like what's your favorite book and, and I'll say uh, well it's East of Eden but you shouldn't read it uh, and, and here's why. Now you can tell you, I, I will take any chastisement from you, Byron, uh, as seriously as if it comes from the Lord here. But, um, I say you shouldn't read it because you'll read it and you'll think it's a, a menagerie of fantasy about people who couldn't possibly exist in the real world. Um, but if you wait till you're 30, maybe 35, maybe 40, and read it, you'll be like, oh, I know these people. I've run into these people. Or I am this person. I am Adam, right? The sucker who will do anything for the affection of Kathy. Tell me where I'm wrong there. Oh, I think you're pretty right. I think you're pretty right. I think we waste uh, so much good literature on particularly teenagers in like high school classes. They're Mm. not ready for that stuff yet. Um, And then when they reread it later, but they may not because they have a distaste for it there again. They have a distaste for something, so it make them years uh, until they finally get around to reading a Steinbeck uh, or Moby Dick or what have you. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think I think we need to be a little careful. Mm. Uh, I mean, on one hand, it may not hurt, but yeah, there, there's a lot of books that I think are for people that are just a little bit older. It's yeah. the same way with contemporary fiction too. I mean, I, I read some contemporary fiction and I just love it, and then I wonder. Is somebody that's 20 years old going to appreciate this in the way I do as a 70-year-old guy? Yeah. So, yeah, it's complicated. In, in the same way that, you know, people say, oh, you're reading this book on – what I'm, I'm working on a book on biblical law, so I'm reading lots of law stuff right now. Like, should I read it? I'm like, well, no. I have a – like, this – I love this book, but it, I love it in a very nerdy way that it strikes a lot of interest that I have that you don't have. So again, this comes back to this hand-to-glove fittedness, but also age, maturity, sense of imagination. Like, can can you actually entertain, uh, imagine the the imaginary required to sustain what's being uh, taught in that book? Um, but this and all for brings my us, purposes, oh, sorry, sometimes I think people need to read. A book about the imagination or about the oh, yeah. arts, a Christian kind of inspiring book about using your imagination rather than a, a piece of fiction. Like you say, oh, give somebody a novel and we'll unlo- unlock their imagination. But if they kind of aren't ready for that, you for some people, you have to make an argument for why that matters. Then oh, they read good. that and then they're like, oh, I get it now. Now I'll go read a novel that will unlock my imagination and now I'll understand my Bible better. I mean, I'm convinced that you can read your Bible better if you've read novels. Eugene Peterson says that. Mm. Calvin Sayreville says that. I mean, all kind of folks have made the case that an imaginative sort of worldview and a capacity to imagine, I mean, just to understand poetry. You can't understand mm-hmm. half the Bible if you don't understand poetry. And I don't understand poetry very well. So mm-hmm. learning about poetry is going to help me become a better biblical Christian if I believe that this is God's word because i got to inspire read it appropriately so 
So yeah, even the art of reading the Bible well may take some detours. So I'd say rather than read the Psalms, you know, read Robert Frost or something and get mm-hmm. a handle for poetry, and then go read the Psalms. Not because the Frost is more important than the Bible, but because it's going to unlock how you read the Bible, which is really the good stuff. So you want to get to the Psalms, but you yeah. may just need some exercise in doing that. And if you read the Psalms like you read Romans or like you read Leviticus, it's not always going to work for you. So you just need to have your mind blown and expanded with an imagination, which is why we've got to read widely, fiction and nonfiction, poetry and prose. And uh, that kind of a wide reader, I believe, will make you uh, ultimately a better Bible reader, too. Am I, am I wrong about that? You know, well, you know the languages. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're striking up all kinds of interesting chords in me because uh, obviously a lot of us have been deeply impacted by uh, Robert Alter, Mary Sternberg, Adela Berlin, okay. who are all talking about the literary form and function of the biblical text. Yep. An interesting Robert Alter, I think he's agnostic or atheist. He's not a religious Jewish person, even though he speaks – Israeli Hebrew fluently, like he's in the text all the way. And I interviewed him for our podcast, and it's only there that I found out he's never taught a class on biblical literature. Um, this is all like a side project of his. I mean, he does contemporary, mainly contemporary literature uh, and um, modernist literature, I think. So, um, so that's been highly formative for us on the biblical scholarship side, thinking about the text as literature. Um, but several things come to mind. So I'm just going to hijack this as getting your impressions off of things that I think and see where I'm wrong. Um, I just started teaching at Hope College a, an upper-level Old Testament class, and my complaint was I taught at King's College for 12 or 13 years, and I taught a mandatory freshman Old Testament class that every freshman had to take, right? And my complaint was I loved it. I love exposing freshmen to biblical literature, but I also it was painful because I knew 18, 19-year-olds – there's not a whole lot of black and white in the Old Testament or the New Testament. There's a lot of gray area. Um, it's very sophisticated literature. It's making very sophisticated literary moves. Um, and the poetry, I mean, even the poetry, it's, you know, it's difficult to get them out of Robert Frost or rhyme and meter center poetry into Hebrew poetry, which is in some ways functioning in a different way. Yeah. And so I always thought, like, this should really be like a junior or senior level class. And even then, we're only going to get introductory stuff going on, and so I'm now teaching it as an upper level class, and it's a whole you know it's a whole different world of exploration that we're going through. But if if we take this principle seriously, that you know we don't I, I don't think you were suggesting this, but that people shouldn't be exposed to literature until they're kind of emotionally or intellectually ready for it. Um, this is a chicken in, in the egg. Does the Bible also create the conditions if you're exposed to all of it, or at least you know the breadth of biblical literature and thinking? Does it kind of crack the nut on helping us get into literature more broadly? Because you know from history, the Bible was often the the first literature class that most Americans had up through the early 1900s. Yeah. In the sense of that's what they they were reading like the Bible and Shakespeare, you know. Yeah. I, I would like to think that. However, you know, we have this sort of technocratic worldview, many, many of us. And so we impose that on the scriptures. I mean, just the other day in Comment Magazine, I was rereading an excerpt from Walter Brueggemann's book about preaching as poetry. Mm-hmm. And, and Brueggemann, you know, will say you got this either you're either like too technocratic and pragmatic or you're too romantic and liberal. And, and the, the biblical imagination is something different than either of those. So, yeah, maybe people read the Bible as a literature for years and years. 
and that maybe was before the 20th century when we had quite the Enlightenment model, or maybe they were reading it wrongly in those days, and mm. that's why we're in such a mess, because people didn't even understand how to read Hebrew poetry, um, and you do. So I don't know. Yeah, it is a chicken and the egg, but I, mm. I do think that there is some difficulty with superimposing our own sort of secularized worldview and they say now we're going to go to god's word and it'll blow me away but you still read into it from your own space so we need to somehow allow the bible to speak in such a way that it reforms even how we read the text and if Mm. just digging into the text naively allows us to do that then praise the lord but i'm not sure it may just take some good teachers and some wise pastors Mm. and some good preachers that are imaginative to give you some tools to do that well, a Sunday school class or whatever. So, yeah, I'm not saying you can't ever read the Bible until you've you know, read all the canons of literature and poetry and taken a course on Hebrew poets. Uh, but a little bit of help will unlock that stuff well. Yeah. I mean, maybe you know this little obscure book. This is really obscure, but Calvin Serveld, uh, who teaches aesthetics, used to be at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Um, he did a little book on the Balaam's donkey story. Is it Numbers 23, I think? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah. And he says, uh, here is how sort of a fundamentalist reads this passage. Mm-hmm. And he kind of tells it almost like a little commentary. And he quotes the commentaries from the fundamentalist tradition. And then he says, here's how sort of a progressive, liberal, classic liberal 20th century theologian would read it and he quotes the anchor commentaries about criticism and literature and stuff and he shows you how they read it and then he does like another reading which is like a hyper reformed puritan kind of reading that superimposes a certain reformed worldview onto it and he shows how each of these readings of the same passage are both good they but each kind of unlock something and are deeply troubling because they don't really get at the gospel news of the text in the narrative mm. And then he offers his own sort of fourth rendering of the passage and what you can get out of it in the historical, redemptive, covenantal way that he brings to the table. That little book just blew me away. It was one of those, I bet I've read it three or four times, to Mm. show how the same passage can be understood so very differently based on the assumptions of the reader. Now, in each case, they're all sort of theologians, preachers that have been informed in this particular tradition. So your preacher or your pastor or your commentary that you choose to read alongside your your Bible is going to shape how you understand the text. And that in itself is part of the conversation of reading widely and making sure we're not stuck in some dysfunctional groove that we think is authoritative and right, when actually there's other readings out there that may be more fruitful in understanding God's word in in any given biblical passage. Yeah, it seems to be addressed. I don't know that book. Uh, strangely, I do an almost identical exercise um, with a passage, Genesis, uh, uh, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and then I go through yeah. ancient commentary all the way up to Phyllis Tribble and uh, yeah. have them look at all the different ways people take that text um, and how much Absolutely. really what you're seeing is a mirror reflecting uh, the person, their time, their metaphysical or yeah. ethical concerns, theological concerns, etc. Um yeah, and then and then you just say like, okay, but this is a story, and this is the climax slash resolution of the story. What role, <laughs> what role does this play structurally in the story? And that gets kind of gets lost in the wash, right? Yeah, 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 um, yep, yep. If I hear you saying this correctly, though, I think uh, there's more biblical oh, scholars out there now, reliable evangelical guys and women that are doing such good work in this area. Um, back 40, 50 years ago when I was learning the Bible and learning a little bit of this stuff, not that I was much of a Bible scholar really, but you just read a little bit of this stuff. 
And it was sort of they were real literalist fundamentalists mm-hmm. that had a pretty closed down reading. And then there were people that were just critical and saying, well, this is the J source or something, you know, and that Brueggemann himself says that's not very helpful. And now there's all kind of people that respect the text that are mm-hmm. godly people that are opening up things. Uh, I mean, any Baker academic or Erdman's or InterVarsity Press catalog or even Fortress, some of the stuff coming out these days is just so refreshing to me. And I think in a certain sense, publishing is better now than it's been. The readers may not be there as much. And the little bookstores of our closing, so we could talk about the whole sociology of the book world these days and the publishing industry. But um, but the books themselves are as good as they've ever been in the theological world. Um, because we've seen this breakdown of the sort of the left and the right, the liberals and the conservatives. Uh, we've seen a, a sort of a reproachment of all of that. And so right. I'm seeing better stuff now than I've ever seen in, in the book world uh, after after being a bookseller for 40-some years. I, you know, I, I never really thought – I mean, I know the history of the movement. I know that as literature – literary studies coming in the in the 80s, um, I, I came into the world of seminary where those were already having a, an impact in the late 90s. Um, yeah. But I hadn't really thought about like it, as a as a Christian just trying to piece things together from your your authorities, your trusted authorities. It was just a very different scene of what's important and what you pay attention to. So on on that note, because um, I did want to talk about Christian publishing today, um, I, I I'm just interested personally in what you see as trends, good and and bad. And again, we don't have to name any books or publishers or any particularities because I'm sure there are, there are just general trends that you think are helpful. Um, besides this new one that you just identified, and then what are things that you, that worry you as somebody who's had your thumb on the scale for a long, sorry that that's the wrong one. <laughs> Not the right metaphor. What was the metaphor I was looking for? The analogy was, you've been in this world for a long time. Uh, uh, Finger in the air. Finger in the air. That's Uh, what it is. I knew there was a digit in there somewhere. (laughs) I've seen a couple of trends, and just off the top of my head, I wasn't anticipating this question necessarily, but off the top of my head, I think one of the biggest trends of the last 40 years has been the way in which Protestants – and particularly evangelical Protestants, have embraced contemplative spirituality. Mm. When we opened 40 years ago, we had a section on contemplative spirituality. And it was Thomas Merton. I used to work for the Thomas Merton Center for a while. It was Richard Foster, you know, um, who I admired greatly. And we had conservative Christians that started a petition to boycott us because they thought we were teaching transcendental meditation and mind control and new age stuff. There was new age stuff was in the wind in those days. And I was like, I'm not interested in new age stuff at all. The Bible says to meditate on the word of God. And Richard Foster is as solid as they come. He draws on Catholic medieval mystics, but um, that has changed. You have the best contemplative inner life stuff, interior life stuff, Ruth Haley Barton and stuff on inner varsity press. Mm-hmm. Marlena Graves, I don't know, whoever. Dallas Willard comes to mind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Fantastic book, stuff. Uh, you know, Spirit of the Disciplines was just pivotal. Of course, yeah. he's the guy that taught Richard Foster. 
So, uh, you know, Foster and Willard and Gary Moon and some of these guys years ago started writing about contemplative stuff. Um, Ruth Haley Barton is a master at that with her transforming center. Um, so that kind of stuff is a major trend. Henry Nouwen was part of that. Oh, yeah. And the way Protestants began to read Henry Nouwen, they never quite adopted Thomas Merton in that way, but they adopted Nouwen. Mm. And so the Henry Nouwen kind of contemplative, gentle, interior life stuff. And I've got a couple of concerns about a little of that, but largely I'm grateful and think that that then breaks down some of the divide between Protestants and Catholics. You have yeah. evangelical publishers like InterVarsity that have Roman Catholic priests writing the forewords to their books, which you would not have seen 40 years ago. Hmm. You know, God bless J.I. Packer and those kind of guys that helped make InterVarsity who it was. But now you have InterVarsity publishing Roman Catholics and you have, you know, Rollhauser, uh, uh, you know, a Catholic priest endorsing books on Baker or whatever. Hmm. So that's a big trend is that more ecumenical reading, the crossing of left, right, and center, Catholic and Protestant and Orthodox. And that is a huge, huge concern for our bookstore. We've been committed to being ecumenical from the day we opened because Jesus cares about that. His last great prayer was that we might be one. And as Schaefer hmm. used to write, you know, this is the final apologetic. Anyway, we want to reach people with the gospel We've got to show them the unity of the church because we are one. So living into that oneness at least means reading each other's books a little mm. bit. And so having Protestants read Catholics and Catholics appreciating evangelicals and Pentecostals reading, you know, liberal theologians and Brueggemann being read by everybody. Uh, Brueggemann's an important figure in this and Henry Nouwen is an important figure in this. And so mm. that's sort of one of the trends, both this ecumenical crossover of different schools of thought. Um, and the contemplative spirituality trend. Now, both of those things have happened now for years. But as I look back at the at least publishing world trends, uh, Kriegel, I mean, all kind of formally sort of strict conservative places are doing contemplative spirituality, some of them out of a Puritan perspective, some right. out of a Catholic mystical perspective. But they're getting at this experience of deep knowledge of God and a piety that's rooted in ancient practices. So that's something that's pretty darn important, I think, that I've lived to see and we're grateful. Um, I, have a, the embrace I have a theory on that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. We have a little Go delay ahead. here. Uh, well, at least part of that, and this is my own personal an anecdotal evidence, is the large non-denominational – and the charismatic movements uh, outside of the Catholic charismatic movements, the Anglican charismatic movements, but the, kind of in the broader Methodist, Wesleyan, Baptist – not Baptist, sorry, but um, – the broader movements, the number of 70 and 80-year-old people that I know from out of the charismatic Jesus movements who are now reading all of that contemplative stuff because they, they understood the contemplative stuff, but they at some point they're just like, I've experienced enough craziness now. I want to see how this is grounded in the traditions of the church. <laughs> like what has withstood the test of time basically because we've seen what hasn't. So that's one one facet. Well, some I think of it's that stuff is pretty weird too. I mean, the yeah. Philokalians. Some of that has got its own kind of edgy weirdness to it. So, yeah. so yeah, the, the church is a beautiful thing. We talk about generous orthodoxy, but man, right. uh, that's a broad thing. And we still find in the publishing, in the book selling world, I, I don't get out as much as I should. But in the small mom and pop bookstores, it seems that they're still pretty sectarian. There's mm -hmm. Wesleyans and there's Calvinists and there's Pentecostals. There's, uh, you know, black Adventists. Um, 
and not too many stores are principally ecumenical of mm. the way we are. And we don't have many Orthodox customers because they're not all that ecumenical. Most of my Orthodox friends are converts to Orthodoxy and they're ecumenical. But the real Greek Orthodox in town, they don't shop here. But I carry their books. I have everything of the same Vladimir Seminary Press, you know. Mm. Uh, they wouldn't know that because they don't shop here. But we do. And evangelicals are reading it. You know, they'll want to read Chris Sistom or somebody. So that's been sort of an interesting, fun journey to emphasize and, and encourage um, an, an ecumenical sort of reading. Another big trend that, that we've noticed is, and some people don't like this, but the sort of commitment to social justice concerns mm. in, in light of a highly orthodox biblical Christianity. In other words, right. evangelicals, like University Press, um, it's not just Ron Sider anymore. Right. You know, and Ron Sider was impeccably evangelical. I don't know about Kim Polo and Jim Wallace. They're all buddies of ours, and we've had them to the store. But Ron was an impeccable evangelical. And uh, he took a lot of heat, and we were good friends and carried his books. But now all kind of people are going way beyond where Ron was in terms of rich Christians in an age of hunger and a simple lifestyle and a, and a passionate commitment to peacemaking. And so you're seeing those kind of things in all the evangelical presses, multicultural stuff, bringing more people of color to the table and realizing that the publishing world needs to have both women and people of color represented well. And and even traditional kind of publisher like Broadman Holman or somebody is doing that more with Jackie Hill Perry or whoever. Mm-hmm. So black women have a more voice than they used to. Um, people of color have more access to publishing both in the secular publishing world and in the evangelical publishing, religious publishing world. Um, so that's an exciting thing to see, too, to just sit in as fresh voices and new stuff that I used to say 40 years ago that young bucks are writing now. And I'm like, wow, how about that? So and they're getting away with it. <laughs> there are some people that complain about people that are woke and that's just sort of silly. And that's kind yeah. of a trend, too, is this Trumpian right wing um, nationalist stuff. And there's a couple of publishers that are doing that stuff now. But frankly, it's just not sustainable. It's kind of goofy, I think. So the the more holistic vision of the kingdom that we're hearing more and the more ecumenical stuff and the contemplative spirituality encounters with Christ in the classic spiritual disciplines of the church. And then the liturgical stuff. Hmm. You have moody press of all people doing books on Anglican liturgy. Like I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Where conservative evangelicals are at least appreciating some of the you know, stuff about Lent and stuff about Advent and the liturgical calendar. Evangelical megachurches, independent megachurches that are seeker-sensitive are still wanting to incorporate a little bit of the contemplative riches of the liturgical calendar into their worship experiences. So that's sort of interesting, too, is that we're seeing a, a, a rebirth of liturgical studies within Protestant circles. So that's a real interesting trend we're seeing just recently. Yeah, where would you trace that? Because I gave a talk at Southeastern Baptist uh, last year, um, and I was trying to trace a little bit of uh, Bible reading as a ritual. Because you know, I'm, yeah, everything's yeah. a ritual for me, right? Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I don't know the actual lineage. I started with like, okay, well, you have certainly Dallas Willard, Jamie Smith. You know, you could kind of say like Jamie Smith. I think really what that book series really went wide. Um, for all the good stuff that was going on there, but do you do you see anybody before them that kind of was uh, putting the um, the wedge in the crevice uh, to get that liturgical route open for the rest of us well, to Robert, follow? Robert Weber, Robert okay. Weber, 
who had been at Wheaton, wrote a book years ago called Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail hmm. on why evangelicals were becoming Episcopalian. Well, now they're becoming Anglican or they're becoming Orthodox. Right. Um, I'm, I'm a Presbyterian at a mainline Presbyterian church. We've got a little bit of liturgical formality, but not not terribly so. And so I'm pretty modern. I was raised Methodist. Um, but I love reading that stuff. I'm kind of funny like that. I love reading about liturgical spirituality, even though I don't particularly care to practice that in my own worship experience as much as maybe my Anglican friends would. But Weber was the key to all that. And Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail. Um, Robert Weber was a great man. Jamie Smith once gave a gave a talk at the Weber Institute, which is at a, a Anglican seminary in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh. Yeah, Trinity. yeah. And uh, it's a spot. It's an annual lecture sponsored under the Weber name. And he said something to the effect of, "This is what it's all about. All my, you are what you love. The, the those that trilogy of books that then was popularized, and you are what you love." He said, "If I could just say this and tell people to read Weber, you know, mm. I've I've done I've done my work." And so the mm. the connection that I didn't at first uh, into it was that Weber influenced Jamie Smith. Hmm. Yeah, I did not. Hey, you are your love is a popular book. Still is a popular book, and that has made a huge difference. Your human rights yeah. gets at that. Real, real talk. I did not like book. "You Are What You Love." I'll just be completely honest. You didn't. I, I did not like that book at all. I'd read his other. Maybe it's once I've read his other stuff. I also like. Well, you know my work. I I'm I'm very. I hate to say biblically rooted. Like I come from the the the. The intellectual world of the Bible, and uh, yeah. you are what you love is the divide. And this is this is not a, this is nothing against Jamie Smith. I love his work and always point people to it. But I think I started seeing the divide, which I did not realize existed at that time. Uh, I thought Dutch Reform meant Al Walters uh, and that yeah. kind of you know like I uh, biblical theology, Gerhardus Voss, biblical theology. So if you don't know who these people, these are kind of famous biblical, well, classicists turned biblical scholars. Um, and I didn't. I I just didn't like the. I I finally realized like, oh, he's kind of working independent of the biblical model, even though what he's saying is very much in tune with the biblical model, model intuitively. Um, so I, I was like, oh, that's the one that got really famous. That book. I wish there was a, like a more biblically integrated, but that's not his fault. That's you know, like when you read a book and you're like, oh, I wish they had written the book that I wanted them to write. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that's, that not, all that's nothing against him. No. He, 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 of course, Jamie's a philosopher. And yeah, he yeah, he's a philosopher. Studies where Al Walters was at the time. Yeah, but he partnered up with you know guys like well, Richard Middleton. Yeah, no, scholar. they all hate me because I say, "Oh, you're a philosopher. You well, you should know Hebrew. If you're a Christian philosopher, you should know Hebrew philosophy first, and then you can know all this other philosophy and integrate it appropriately." So, but yeah, I'm be, I'm just being a a jerk. Is there anything that, like, I know there is, but I think if there is there anything you can help us think through uh, Christian publishing that really might be distracting or unhelpful, or the kinds of books that get published? I mean, you know, you know the the mechanical side of how things get published, how things work their way through editorial rooms, why why some people get published over others that can often have to do with author platform more than the content of the book and those kind of things. 
But I wonder if there's anything for you that's like, hey, Christians, quit buying books this way or quit shopping for books this way um, because here's what's going on and it would be better if you did it this way instead or or if you think about Christian books in a different way um, rather than a product or an object or something. I don't I don't know. I'm, what do you think? Jeez, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, besides buy from your local bookstore, and if you don't have a good local bookstore, then. I mean, I I have this sort of desire, as we started out talking about, helping books meet people's needs, meeting them where they're at, uh, being useful in people's lives so that they want to dig deeper. And so I'm not opposed to self-help books and basic guides to coping with inner peace or anxiety or uh, the how-to kind of stuff. I wish we would get beyond that, mm. go deeper and further in and deeper and stuff. But but there is a heck of a lot of books these days coming out that I would call self-help. And they're better than they used to be. But there's still just all these books about managing your emotions. I mean, they realize that statistics after COVID and stuff, people have got more anxiety, people have more depression. Um, but there's just all these mommy bloggers and people that give advice online and TikTok people that then get book platforms and they're all kind of hip and fun and interesting and just a little of that goes a long way with me. So I don't I don't oppose those. We carry, I don't know, Jenny Allen or whoever, people that write books about relationships and stuff. But I just wish we could somehow move that conversation and move that need a little bit towards kind of worldview formation and the lordship of Christ over the life of the mind and the practices we embody as we live our lives daily instead of always just more of this, how do I feel good about myself? Mm. So, so the brokenness of people's hearts are real, and we need books that help mend people. So I'm not opposed to that, but I do wish sometimes the publishers would, and they are. There are publishers that do move into other areas. But those kind of books don't sell. Yeah. Maybe they're adopted in some classroom somewhere. But I've had publishers that have done books on a certain topic. I don't know, say advertising. And it's one of the only Christian books of its kind. Nobody has written about that before. And the book goes out of print in less than a year. Hmm. So I called the publisher. In this case, I called up one publisher in Grand Rapids and said, why is this book out of print already? And they said, oh, nobody bought it. And I said, well, why? It's the only book of its kind. We need some books on this topic. We have a million books on relationships and on prayer and on healing your anxiety. But we have nothing on this topic for ordinary people to kind of uh, navigate the advertising world and the consumerism that's always coming at us. And they said, well, here's what they found out. Booksellers, and there were many Christian bookstores back in those years, booksellers didn't order it because they didn't know where to put it. Mm. In other words, they didn't have a popular culture studies center. They didn't have a section on film studies or media studies or news as, as we do. I mean, we just opened our store to have every category that a Barnes and Noble would have or that every sphere of life we can think of media studies, architecture, whatever. We fill it up with books that seem to be theologically aware in those different areas. But most Christian bookstores don't do that. So they have faith and piety and church and focusing on the family and maybe social concerns or the section of contemporary life or something, mm -hmm. one little shelf of random stuff. But they didn't know what to do with this book on media studies. So nobody ordered it because the bookseller didn't know where to put it. So that's right there. One of my hopes is that bookstores would become more bona fide bookstores and not just selling 
merchandise with Jesus labels on it, what some people uh, sort of jokingly call Jesus junk. There's just too much stuff in bookstores that aren't books. And then the books they have are just too many broad, generic categories, Christian living. What the heck does that mean? What isn't Christian living? It's where you put the cookbooks. Like, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. How to fold so your laundry like Jesus. Hey, I'm, I'm popping well, out we gems here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we have books on laundry, and we have books on working as under the Lord in homemaking that are good in quality. Um, so, yeah, we need home economics. That's a yeah. section. So I'm not making fun of any given sections. I'm just saying the broad, generic Christian living and and focus on the family just isn't enough categories for bookstores. So yeah. the publishers publish what they think the booksellers can sell. Now, that was all the way it was for 30 years. Nowadays, it's all online. And so the publishers themselves and the authors themselves represent their own books on their podcasts and their social media. And as you kind of alluded Guilty. to, that's really true. Yeah. Somebody has a good book, and the first question a publisher, even a good publisher, will ask is what's your social media platform? Because if you don't have a blog or an Instagram account or some kind of thing going on like that, a podcast or something, then we can't do your book because you have to sell your own book. It used to be publishers marketed the book, advertised the book, and sold the book. Now the author has to do it. And so the author does that through social media and Amazon links. So I have people that I poured myself into long, thoughtful reviews showing how much I care about an author. I'm going to be honest with you here. And then that author, you know, has their own Facebook page with Amazon links. Mm. It just makes no sense why so many Christian authors are in bed with Amazon who are corrupt. They don't pay their right taxes. They rip off people. They bully publishers. They steal ebook uh, royalties. They publish pirated books like Tish Warren book lost so much oh, money yeah, because yeah. they sold this fake one. Um, and so Amazon is just corrupt and bad. And it's an unhelpful mechanism to buy books because they can't counsel you. You will order a study guide and think you're getting the paperback edition of the book, but it's just a study guide. You didn't notice that. And yeah. they, I could tell you that if you ask me, but they don't tell you anything because they're faceless. So yeah. the human scale buying a book from a counselor or a helper or a bookseller that knows you and knows what's good for you is a habit everybody should have. And going to Amazon just isn't helpful. Secular publishers and authors hate Amazon, and very few secular publishers ever link to Amazon. Huh. Secular authors rave about their independent bookstores. Christian authors, on the other hand, will stab an independent bookseller in the back like that without even thinking about it. Yeah. So that's the most annoying thing for me in my life is I feel like a punch in the gut every single day when authors, including friends of mine, tell their people to buy their books at Amazon as if I don't exist. Right. So I'm being real honest here. It's really oh, hurtful it. to see what's happening in Christian publishing and the way they get into bed with these sleaze bags at Amazon. Well, I admit I kind of use Amazon as a Google when I just need a book link. Like, oh, here's a book. And I just go grab it without yeah. thinking about it because they've habituated us into that very, they've, very they've, well. They've stolen our imagination and they've shaped us to habituate it is exactly right. People just assume that's where you buy books nowadays, yeah. as if other bookstores don't even exist. So when somebody has an Amazon link, if I know them, if I care about them, I'll sometimes put in the Facebook chat or wherever fine books are sold. You know, like, <laughs> they you still don't, don't get the hint. Just buy it somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. So that kind of conversation about where you buy books and how you buy books and who you listen to to recommend your books—that's um, a—that's a 
good thing that we could work on yeah. where people could have their own favorite bookseller. I don't care if it's me, but somebody that they trust, they can talk to um, instead of just going to the algorithm. Well, I'm telling you, as a, you know, a new convert to Christianity when I was 20, if I had walked into a local bookstore, because I was looking for Christian books, I, was, I didn't understand Christianity. I was kind of new to the whole thing. Um, I knew it culturally, but I didn't understand what it actually it was. I would have been open to a lot, but if I went to a bookstore and they had a section on science and theology that wasn't merely apologetics books telling you why evolution yeah. and everything else was wrong, I, I probably yeah. would have been blown away. I probably would have picked up that book and been like, wait, what? A theology yeah. of science, you know? Um, yeah. But I'm, yeah. I'm almost certain that book section did not exist at the my local Christian bookstore, which was not a Lifeway, oh, but yeah. it was basically a, a regional Lifeway bookstore. Um, yeah. And so your new book goes where in the bookstore category, <laughs> by the way? You know, I, it's in the science, but it's also history and it's also Bible. Um, well, as you know, we, we don't ever promote my books on this podcast. This isn't that kind of podcast. I'm not a platforming, so we've never talked about my books on this podcast. So we'll leave them. Well, out. we should. We should. You but, do good work. It's, I, no, it's a. Uh, but you're exactly right, and that, that was actually one of my concerns in that book. Is like, how is this going to be marketed? Where is it going to be put on the shelf? Um, and who, you know, who's going to run into it? I I want to give a plug too. But I know a lot of your business comes through online. People who know you and want to uh, support a local book distributor rather than a, a Amazon. But the power of walking down the shelves, I I I think that in and of itself. I try my. I actually force my students because they'll say, <laughs> they'll say I couldn't find any of the resources. I was like, well, when you were walking down the aisles in the library, did you not see the BS BT? You know. And they're like, oh, I didn't go to the library. I'm like, yeah, the books I'm recommending are actually only in the library. You can't get them online. You know, I always try to pick books that, that are not digitized, like commentaries. Um, and I'm like, just just scan the shelves and see what people have written, what we have there. And I and I think that in and of itself, I can't tell you how many things I've run into where I was just like, wait, there's a book on this? Pull it off the shelf, read a few pages. Maybe that's all I do. Um, but that's forming my imagination for how people think about the topic, right? Exactly. And yep. how do you do that without physical space? That yeah. I'm sorry. I, I lost. What was the last sentence as you said? I, I said there's some serendipity to that too. Yes. You just sort of, or providence, if you want to call it that. You know, you're just messing around, looking at stuff, and something you see. Now that can happen online as well. But chances are it's not going to be quite the right thing, and it's shaped by algorithms and so forth. Where if you're in a library or a good bookstore, you just things fall out of you, and, and it's beautiful. Yeah. I think it's like the radio for my kids, where my kids were always, when you turn the, the regular radio on, they would always go, oh, play that song again. And I go, I can't. It's the radio. And they could not, because they grew up just on that liminal boundary of where they couldn't understand that it wasn't all pre-selected, pre-curated, you know, or it is pre-curated, just not by me. Um, and I feel like that's the beauty of the physical space of a library and a bookstore is, um, is that there's something liberating about, I didn't have to put all this together and it's not based on me or my preferences. It's like something bigger than me going on here. And I, I get to, I get to scroll 15 different people's minds that put these shelves together, you know? Well, Byron, is, again, I think people have to want to do that. Yeah. You know, the we are what you love slogan. Um, and so somehow lighting a fire into people that make them want to be lifelong learners. Mm. I think for most Christian people, at least serious Christians, to, they want to do that if they understand that God calls them to that. 
that Christianity is an embodied practice of learning to live well in the world, that mm. we are uh, what we love and what we care for, and that that means studying well. There's that proverb about, you know, or that psalm about, you know, uh, blessed is he, you know, that studies all the stuff of creation. There's that Job passage that says, you know, listen to the fish and they will speak to you. If we understand that the way God has wired the world is for us to unpack it and unfold it and bring forth the potentials of it, that that's what our human calling is. It's what we're here to do, to learn stuff. Um, I think as people see the connections between lifelong learning and reading as a tool to do that, based on a solid view of creation, fall, and redemption. So as we have that biblical narrative in our bones, and people then realize the significance of learning about how to live in the world, then maybe they'll want to browse the library and see what they can learn. But yeah. if they don't see that that's a uniquely religious act, that they don't see that that's a distinctively Christian thing to do, hmm. a human thing to do, but a Christian thing to do, um, if they don't, if they just see that's oh you brainy people that are interested in books do that I'd rather surf the channels for different sports games, which is fine too. Uh, but when it all matters to God and you can practice the presence of God while doing those things, then everything becomes an act of worship, so to speak. Mm. So so scanning the shelves becomes important as an act of worship. If you can convince people of that, <laughs> then I would like to think that they'll be more likely to want to take you up on this call to be a reader and to care about books and libraries. Well, Byron Borger in the Hearts and Minds uh, Bookstore in Pennsylvania, we thank you so much for your wisdom and just for keeping a physical space open for the world. Well, we thank you for allowing us just to ramble on about it a little bit here. Thanks, <laughs> Drew. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 